CB On Air, cutting-edge conversations with those in the central banking community. Hello, I'm Dan Hinge, news editor at Central Banking, and you're listening to CB On Air. We've come to the final episode of our tour of post-crisis central banking. It's the big question. What do we do when the next crisis strikes? Hopefully you're familiar by this point with our guest for the series, Professor Andrew Metrick of Yale University. He's been involved with several projects trying to tackle the crisis-fighting question, so he's well-equipped to guide us through the issues. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, if a crisis strikes tomorrow, are we ready? Sadly, I would have to say no, but I I, I don't think that's a very controversial position. Uh, I would say no, both because there has been a focus on prevention, since the last crisis, and it's good to have, uh, it's good to do better on prevention. But along with the focus on prevention, we've pulled back a bit from the tools that we can use actively, and we've lost some of the political capital that would be necessary to use the ones that we still have. Between those two things, if a crisis were to strike uh, tomorrow, I think there would be a real challenge to to have the level of, of, of reaction that um, that we had in the past crisis. So what sort of measures do you envisage a central bank taking in this hypothetical crisis? And uh, do they have enough tools at their disposal? Well, we have a project at Yale where we're trying to look at this question broadly defined. Uh, We call it the New Badgett Project, uh, named for a famous Englishman from the 19th century who who wrote a book called Lombard Street, which gave us uh, the, the only rule that central bankers, I think, all over the world would agree on, which is in a panic lend freely at a penalty rate against good collateral. Uh, Badgett's dictum was violated on each one of its clauses in the last crisis, often for good reason, but it's certainly too simplistic and too short to serve as an adequate guide for fighting crises in the 21st century. So one thing that we're, we, we have going at Yale now is something we call the New Badgett Project, where uh, we have a uh, a, a wonderful team of uh, senior scholars and, and energetic young people that are trying to catalog all of the interventions of various different types that have been done by governments in crises of the past, uh, starting with the global financial crisis, but going back all the way to ancient Rome, if we can, and to synthesize any lessons that we can get from those uh, from from those different government interventions, the types of interventions are are, are actually not that hard to catalog because uh, they almost all of them will operate on some different part of the balance sheet of financial institutions or the whole financial system. That is, you have activities that target the liability part of the balance sheet. When we say emergency lending uh, or the guaranteeing of of lending on the part of banks. You have uh, you have things that affect the equity part of the balance sheet, which are capital injections. Things that affect the asset side, such as directly purchasing assets, either from markets or from institutions. And then things that manipulate the entire balance sheet and reorganize it, such as resolution, restructuring, liquidation type activities. So most things will fall into one of those classes or some catch-all that you might call rules, things like forbearance uh, or uh, short sale restrictions, stress tests, things like that. So since most things fall into these categories and have since time immemorial, uh, it, it is possible to go and look and to see the types of things that have been done 
and when they seem to be most effective. From our project, my view now is I'm quite confident that we will conclude several things that are clearly errors, that are things you don't want to do. Um, and uh, we may, at very least, have some very good discussions about uh, 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 and some consensus about the right technical ways to design things like emergency lending programs or credit guarantees or capital injections so as to maximize the efficacy of those programs while at the same time keeping the amount of moral hazard risk to a minimum. So if a shock were, were to occur tomorrow that was roughly the same size as 2008, how do you see that kind of propagating through the economy? And, and do you think the outcome would be better or worse now? Right now, if it happened tomorrow, it would be worse. And it would be worse because the, the exact tools that we have to fight the emergency panic part of the crisis are weaker. And because I think that the current political climate and political capital that exists wouldn't enable us to do the kinds of extraordinary things that require legislative approval uh, that, we, that we were able to do in 2008 and 2009. So I think it would be worse. But I think there is some hope that 10 years from now, even without any new statutory changes across the major economies, uh, we could regain some of that political capital. And we can learn enough from things that we've done in the past, such that using the tools that we have available, we could perhaps do better than we did in 2008. We would particularly do better than 2008 if we combined that additional knowledge and regained political capital uh, with some additional tools and flexibility. But uh, that part, I think, is above my pay grade. And if you were trying to spot that next crisis coming, uh, where would you look? What kind of things would you look for? Well, the thing that, that we know to look for is to look for debt buildups. And this is no surprise to any central banker today. You look for, for what's happening to leverage particularly short-term leverage, and you look at what is backing uh, that leverage, because it appears that on the housing side, that's is often a reason that the, the housing side gets involved, real estate gets involved, because we're trying to back things that will be perceived as safe. So that's the, that's the obvious thing, and, um, and, and I know that people are doing that. I think the second thing that it's very important to look at are a variety of measures of what is broadly called the convenience yield. That is the thing, the gap between, say, what, what uh, uh, highly rated government securities yield for and what somewhat similarly rated but not government-backed securities have as their yield. And that gap, when it gets very large, tends to drive a lot of activity in the manufacture of short-term wholesale finance. And I think we should be paying a lot of attention to that because that, just, just like interest rates, is a very important measure of the, of the tightness or the looseness of markets that can become dangerous. Okay. It's been quite a, a rapid gallop through the, uh, the post-crisis years, but uh, it's been interesting. Thank you very much, Andrew. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Okay.